Um, let's have a look at um, Colossians chapter 1. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the go- from the hope held out in the gospel this is the gospel that you heard And that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Our second reading is um, from Hebrews and it's um, chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, my God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, 
Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Domine penem vitae et calcisem salutis offerimus. If we were in England in 1540, everything we'd be doing today would be just like that. It'd be in Latin, a language which most of us here would have no understanding of what it meant. But in 1549, Thomas Cremner achieved something radical for the time. He produced the first book of common prayer for church services in English. And it became required by law that services in England be in English, in a language that people could understand, and no longer in Latin, which they couldn't understand. Imagine that. Imagine turning up to church the first week after that, having never really understood much, and instead of hearing memoras, igator, mortis, you hear, g'day mate, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And not only did Cranmer change the service so that people could understand it, he got rid of the idea that communion was all about the, the bread and the wine turning into the body and the blood of Jesus. Cremner changed the service so that no longer was the Lord's Supper about a kind of receiving of a, a mystical top-up of grace so that you'd be right with God, which is how they viewed it before. Instead, he brought the service back into line with Scripture so that now the Lord's Supper was about remembering that Jesus had done everything at the cross. So you didn't need a top-up. Listen to Kremner's prayer in the communion service, which captures this. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, which of thy tender mercy didst give thine own, only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there, by his one oblation, it's a gift of himself once offered, notice this, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, ablation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. It's a pretty complete list, isn't it? Kremner wanted it to be crystal clear that salvation is by Christ alone. Without our contribution, without our cooperation, what Christ does at the cross leaves no room for anything else to be added. Well, like Brian said, over the last 12 months, off and on, We've been looking at those great slogans from the Reformation, those great truths that the Reformers rediscovered from God's Word. And so we saw grace alone, and at the same time we got a bit of Luther's story. We saw faith alone, and we got a bit of Zwingli's story. Last time we saw God's glory alone, and we saw a little bit of Calvin's story. Today we see that Kremner, like all the Reformers, rediscovered in the Bible that salvation comes by Christ alone. His journey to get to this point, though, it possibly took longer than the other Reformers, than any other Reformer, in fact. Because between Kremner first hearing these truths and then fully expressing them himself was actually about 30 years. Around 30 years before Kremner produced his first prayer book, Luther was causing a storm in Europe with his teaching on justification. And there's no doubt that Kremner at that time, back in about 1517 and then the years after, 1520, there's no doubt Kremner would have been discussing and knowing his ideas and debating them, first as a student and then when he was a university don. But it wasn't until King Henry VIII sent him to Germany in 1532 
to be the ambassador to the emperor, that Kremner really started to come under the influence of Protestant ideas. So much so that he actually got married while he was there, even though he was a priest, and that was forbidden. Then in 1533, much to everyone's surprise, including Kremner's, he was called back by Henry VIII to England to become the next Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, Kremner actually wasn't over the moon about this appointment. He was fairly reluctant about it. Henry, if you know anything about him, wasn't exactly the easiest person to work with. But how could Kremner say no? How could he pass up the opportunity to have a powerful influence in bringing the church in England back to the truths of the Bible? It's impossible for us to imagine the kind of pressure that Kremner would have been under for the next 15 years and more. And as we look back on Kremner, it's actually very easy for us to pass judgment on what he had to do to stay in that position and to keep his head, literally. Henry VIII was quite happy to have people he didn't like executed, including two of his wives. He executed an awful lot of people. Kremner is often accused of being weak for staying loyal to Henry and doing his bidding. And maybe he was, actually. But in the end, we're not his judge. But one thing we can be sure of as well is that what would have been weak would have been to wash his hands of the Church of England, to have not taken up the opportunity to bring in England back to the Bible. We love a story where somebody makes a clear, brave stand for what they believe. So don't you love Luther's story when he stands there in front of them all and he says, here I stand, I can do no other. You know, that's a great kind of story. But this is not that kind of story. It's a nail-biting story of a man desperately trying to bring the church back to Scripture bit by bit, even as he grew in his own understanding of the truths of the Bible bit by bit. All the while, him being faithful to a pretty horrible king who wasn't really interested in adopting Protestant ideas at all. His story is a messy one. It's a story of tortured hopes and dreams and it's a story of ugly compromises as well. Well, let's get into it. Henry, he broke off with the Catholic Church not for reasons of belief but because he wanted to have his marriage annulled. He wanted to get rid of his wife. It's a pretty messed up beginning for the Church of England. But you see, it held the possibility that Kremner and the others might be able to introduce reforms through this new situation, this break from Rome, that they might be able to bring the church slowly back to the Bible. And that's exactly what Kremner did, with Henry resisting at almost every step. But when Henry died in 1547, finally Kremner was able to get on with the job of reforming the church under the Protestant king, Edward VI, who was just a boy. One of the first things Kremner did was to get the Book of Homilies, which is a book of 12 sermons, um, required to be uh, preached in the churches. So for the first time, the people would hear in English true teaching, true biblical teaching. Two of these sermons in particular were aimed at helping people to see that salvation is by Christ alone. One of them's got a great title. It goes like this. 
a sermon of the misery of all mankind and of his condemnation to death everlasting by his own sin. They didn't pull any punches. It's followed by a sermon on the sal- of the salvation of mankind by only Christ our Saviour from sin and death everlasting. These sermons were designed to, to bring all the people on board to understand that salvation is by Christ alone. Kremner clearly saw that in and of ourselves, as he would put it, we are miserable sinners. After running through scripture after scripture, listen to what he says in one of these sermons. Thus we have heard how evil we be of ourselves, how of ourselves and by ourselves we have no goodness, help nor salvation, but contrariwise sin, damnation and death everlasting which, if we deeply weigh and consider, we shall the better understand the great mercy of God and how our salvation cometh only by Christ. It's an incredibly negative picture of human nature, isn't it? But it's exactly the same picture as what Scripture gives us. In Romans 5 verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or in verse 10, we're naturally enemies of God. In Ephesians 2 verse 1, Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And then in verse 3, we were by nature deserving of wrath. In verse 5 again, we were dead in transgressions. Kramer isn't wanting us to grovel in despair that we're miserable sinners. Neither is the Bible. That would be actually to miss the point. His aim is the complete opposite. He's taking us on the same journey that Scripture takes us on because he wants us to better understand the great mercy of God. You see, if we miss that we're terrible sinners, then we will miss that our only hope for salvation is found in Christ alone and nowhere else. But did you know that nobody was actually denying that salvation is by Christ alone. At the Council of Trent, which was like the Catholic response to Protestant teaching, look at what they said. This is what one of the popes said. The saints who reign with Christ offer up their prayers to God for men and it is good and useful to invoke them suppliantly and in order to obtain favours from God through His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord who alone is Redeemer and Saviour. See that? It's good to get help from the saints, the Pope says, but then he can say in the same breath, Jesus alone is our Saviour. It's like praying to the saints wasn't meant to deny that salvation was by Christ alone, it's just that Christ uses them in salvation. He's the source, the saints are like the channel by which grace comes to them. The Council of Trent is still very much uh, applicable to Roman Catholics today. And so you see it reflected in the modern Catholic catechism as well, which you can see up here, like in this bit, which says, Christ instituted the sacrament of penance for all sinful members of His Church. Above all, for those who since baptism have fallen into grave sin and have thus lost their baptismal grace. It is to them that the sacrament of penance offers a new possibility to convert 
and recover the grace of justification. Now again, penance isn't meant to deny that salvation is by Christ alone because Christ alone is the source of grace. Penance is just the channel. So the Roman Catholic Church back then, in Kremlin's time and today, say that salvation is by Christ alone. There's an illustration which I'm going to show you that some Catholics use today to um, try and explain all this. It's like a person is a cup. And if you can make it to the end of your life with some of God's grace, the water, in your cup, you won't go to hell. But if you make it to the end of your life empty of God's grace, you're going to go to hell. Now, baptism fills you up with sanctifying grace in Catholic thought, like that. But, um, and you can also top it up as well. So when you go to Lord's Supper and things like that, pray to the saints, you, you get extra, um, extra additions into the cup, good works, things like that. But if you sin a mortal sin or a grave sin, it empties it. And if you die in that state, then you will not escape hell. But it's okay because of God's grace through uh, the intention, true repentance and the intention to go to confession and then um, uh, penance, the sacrament of penance, you can be filled again so that when you make it um, to the end of your life, if you've got something in there, you won't go to hell. Now, other sins, not mortal sins or grave sins, venial sins they're called, they're like polluting the water. And so if you get to the end of your life and the water is polluted, you'll need to go to purgatory, which is like a water filter, which will filter that out. Now, all of that is by Christ alone, by grace alone. These are just channels by which God's grace comes through Christ alone. The only sermon where I've ever truly been blasted after it was when I was speaking on Christian unity and I said, what we believe is too radically different to have Christian, to have Christian unity with Catholics. What we believe is too radically different to have Christian unity with Catholics. Um, and in that sermon, I upset a, a few different sorts of people, including missionaries. It's never, it's never nice to um, upset missionaries in your talk for some reason. Um, but they worked in the same city as Mother Teresa. Now, I was young, I was fresh out of college, maybe I got it wrong. You know, we're all talking about grace. We're all talking about Jesus. We're all talking about Christ alone. Surely that's enough, isn't it? We agree on moral issues like abortion, homosexuality. Lutherans even recently signed a joint declaration agreeing on justification. Current Pope seems okay. Can't we just put our differences aside and just embrace as being on about the same thing? Kremner says no because the Bible so clearly says no. We can embrace each other as fellow Australians, and we should, of course. But we cannot pretend we are on about the same thing. From Scripture, Kremner sees that it's actually arrogant and foolish for us to think that even the very best of our works could contribute in any way to us being right with God. 
Have a look at what he wrote. Let us know our own works, of what imperfection they be. And then we shall not stand foolishly and arrogantly in our own conceits, nor challenge any part of justification by our merits or works. See how he puts it? Whenever we try to contribute to our justification, what are we actually doing? Challenging our justification. The reason for this is because, as Kremner says, what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. And the problem is for us that we have a heart that loves ourselves over and above everything else in this world, including God. So if us, people like this, are involved in any step of salvation, whether creating it or maintaining it or even making use of it, we will only take ourselves further away from God because our mind is a slave of our will and our will is a slave of our heart and our heart is a slave to our love of self. So it is only ever going to lead us further and further away from God. We need a salvation that is completely outside of us. We need an outside righteousness, a foreign righteousness, not dependent on us. And this, of course, is exactly what God does for us in Christ. If we were to continue the cup illustration, here is us, empty and polluted. But the righteousness we get is the righteousness of Christ, which is completely outside of us, which we cannot taint or empty or destroy. It's Christ's righteousness. We can't contribute to it or cooperate. And it's ours. Kremner writes, we must renounce the merit of all our said virtues, and jump down, which we either have done, shall do, or can do, as things that be far too weak and insufficient and imperfect to deserve remission of our sins and our justification. This is just as it says in Romans 5, 9, since we have now been justified by His blood. Right now we are justified and it's something that's completely out of our hands because it's in the past. The past death of Jesus justifies us. And so our future is completely secure because what Christ has done in the past, salvation is by Christ alone. Well, what about us? Where are we at risk of missing this great truth from the Bible that salvation is by Christ alone? In our culture, it's actually pretty easy for us to reject the idea that we need extra mediators between us and God. You know, generally, we don't feel the need for a Pope. We don't feel the need for priests or ministers to mediate God to us. We don't feel the need for saints We don't feel that we need the church or anything else. That's a good thing, right? But actually, I think we find it easy to reject the idea of needing mediators because it's actually easy for us to think that we don't need any mediator. As a culture, we're actually inclined to think that we don't even need Christ. We have a tendency to think, of course God wants me. Of course He would accept me. It's me. Our natural inclination is 
to think that we can represent ourselves before God. Our danger is not that we're likely to deny Christ alone by bringing in other mediators. Our danger is that we're prone to deny Christ alone because we profess self alone. We think we've got what God wants. If you want to see if you're susceptible to this, ask yourself this question. Do you see yourself as a miserable sinner? It's culturally inappropriate for us to even think like that these days. We're told it's bad for self-esteem. But it's how Kremner sees us. Because it's how the Bible sees us. It's how God sees us. And it's not bad for our self-esteem if we understand it right. Because God absolutely, thoroughly loves you and me, despite us being miserable sinners. And He will go on loving us, despite us going on being miserable sinners. And knowing God's unconditional love actually brings about something beautiful in us for the first time. Another way that we can deny Christ alone is by how we consider ourselves or others to be good Christians. So has anyone ever asked you the question, how's your relationship with God? The answer for a Christian will always be the same. The answer for Christians is always perfect. Our relationship with God is established and maintained by Christ's righteousness, which sits outside of us. We don't top up our justification by our daily Bible reading or coming to church on New Year's Day or how we live. We remain miserable sinners till Jesus returns, who are perfectly justified in His eyes through Christ. A better question to ask is, How are you going at expressing your relationship with God? And again, the answer for a Christian will always be the same. How are you going at expressing your relationship with God? The answer will always be miserably. Sometimes more miserable than others. But in this life, we will never express our relationship with Jesus like we should. But nonetheless, we are perfectly loved by God. Perfectly righteous in His eyes perfectly saved because of Christ alone without our contribution or cooperation. Well, let me return to Kremner from considering us and finish with Kremner's story. Kremner had six short years to bring the truths of the Bible back to England without Henry getting in the way after Henry had died. But when King Edward died, Mary Tudor, the daughter of Henry's first wife, became queen. She was thoroughly Catholic and she was determined to return England back to Rome. Kremner was arrested and put in the tower along with many other key Protestant leaders. And over the next few years, Kremner watched his friends get burnt alive at the stake for what they believed. Now, they they wanted to break Kremner to get him to recant as an example. But he held to the truth for many years under tough conditions in the tower. And so they changed tactics. And so they started trying to get him to recant by being nice to him. They took him out of the tower and they promised all sorts of things to him. And tragically, it worked. After years in prison, watching his friends burn... 
he broke. Finally, the, the first thing he did was he signed a recantation that, that really said nothing. But then that led the way to him eventually signing this. I, Thomas Kremner, late Bishop of, Archbishop of Canterbury, do renounce, abhor and detest all manner of heresies and errors of Luther and Zwingli and all other teachings which are contrary to sound and true doctrine. And I believe most constantly in my heart and with my mouth I confess one holy and Catholic church visible without which there is no salvation. And he goes on and on. He recants everything. He was a broken man. Now, they were, they were lovely back then, and so even though he'd recanted, they decided to burn him anyway. But first, he was to be paraded before the people, and he was allowed to give a, a pre-prepared kind of speech that had been pre- approved. Thankfully for us, someone who was there wrote down what happened and what he said, someone who was actually hostile to him. When he was allowed to speak, he was crying gently up the front can't help but wonder what he was crying for. You know, was he crying for the, himself and the horror that he was about to experience? Was he crying for what he'd done? Or was he crying for what could have been but what was lost to England? All those hard years wasted. He led the people in prayer. But then he deviated from his pre-prepared speech. He said he wanted to say something to glorify God and to edify the people who were listening. And then talking about his recanting that he'd signed, he said this, These here now I renounce and refuse as things written with my hand contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart and written for fear of death and to save my life if it might be. And that is all such bills which I have written or signed with my own hand since my degradation, wherein I have written many things untrue. And for for as much as my hand offended in writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall first be punished. For if I may come to the fire, it shall be first burned. And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist, with all his false doctrine. Now at this point, those who were about to burn him jumped in to stop him from speaking. And as they took him to where he was to be burned, all the while they were trying to convince him to recant again, but they couldn't get him to. They kept trying and trying, but he kept just saying that he was sorry that he had ever recanted against the truth. And as they tried one last time, Krebner again showing his hand said, This was the hand that wrote it, and therefore shall it suffer first punishment. And as the fire started, he held out his hand in the flame and kept it there, crying, This hand hath offended. And then he died. Kremner, in his life and in his death, was a very imperfect man. And he illustrates what he taught about the human heart. We are miserable sinners, weak, all of us slaves to our love of self above all else. But he illustrates in his life and in his death even more perfectly that salvation is by Christ alone. 
even our greatest failings can't keep us from God. Our righteousness comes from outside of us. It comes from Christ alone. As we start 2017, a new year, wouldn't it be great if we could write these two things which Christ alone teaches us on our hearts every day of this year? First, absolute humility before God, because in and of ourselves we are miserable sinners. Do you believe that? Yet, second, absolute confidence before God, because in Christ alone we are saved and righteous and assured of eternal salvation. Do you know that? Kremner would say to you, do you feel that? Christ alone is the source of our salvation and Christ alone is the only channel of our salvation. And so, as Kremner wrote, to God therefore must we flee or else shall we never find peace, rest and quietness of conscience in our hearts for he is the father of mercies and God of all consolation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts in and of ourselves are so far from you that we don't even see it. That we love ourselves above all others and we think you should love us above all others, above yourself even. We demand it. And yet, Lord, you have loved us so extreme and in Christ, he showed love to us that sacrificed his own needs and desires because your desire was to see us reconciled with you. Father, help us to realize that we cannot contribute, cooperate or add to our salvation. We are too destitute for that. Help us instead to stand in awe and love of Christ alone. Help us to have a year, Lord, where we are humble before you and yet completely confident because of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.